This week on WealthTrack, financial thought leader and innovator Robert Arnott on the post-pandemic world. What's changed, what hasn't for investors? Next on Consuelo Mack WealthTrack. Funding provided by Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, ClearBridge Investments, a Leg Mason company, Miller Value Funds, Royce & Associates, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, Strategus Asset Management, and Eaton Vance. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. Can investing be simple? Well, with the 2020 vision of hindsight, it sure looks that way. Had investors just decided to stay in the U.S., invest in growth stocks, especially mega cap tech stocks, they would have hit the trifecta over the last decade or more. Has the COVID-19 pandemic changed that formula for success? It has not. If anything, it seems to have accelerated and accentuated it. The extended FANG family, known by the acronym F-A-A-N-G-M for Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google's parent Alphabet, and Microsoft, recently comprised 22% of the total market value of the S&P 500, topping what dot-com stocks reached at the height of the tech bubble. And their performance has dominated, with them outperforming the market and leaving the rest of the S&P family far behind. Left in the dust by this juggernaut combination of U.S. mega-cap tech stocks are value stocks, small company stocks, and international markets, particularly emerging markets. Well, it just so happens those are the very areas that this week's guest believes we should be focusing on now. He is financial thought leader, innovator, and investor Robert Arnott, chairman of the Board of Research Affiliates, which he founded in 2002 as a self-described research-intensive asset management firm that focuses on innovative products. Among the innovations that he has pioneered is fundamental indexation, building indexes with stocks based on the size of their fundamentals, such as sales, profits, cash flow, book value, and dividends, not their stock price. Research Affiliates has created numerous fundamental indexes for a wide variety of markets and asset classes around the world. I asked Arnott how the pandemic and the policies it spawned have changed his investment views. The pandemic has changed my views in a number of important ways. Firstly, uh, we often hear the words, this time is different. And usually when people say that, it's true, but it's not different enough to matter. Uh, this is different enough to matter. This is, we, we haven't had a lockdown of the global macro economy for any pandemic, for the uh, polio epidemic of the 50s, for World War I, World War II, for the Spanish flu. Um, this is a first, and it's the biggest disruption to the economy by far since the Great Depression. And even in the Great Depression, we didn't do a lockdown. We didn't shut down the economy. So the damage is likely to be quite lasting and quite serious. Um, uh, we have 30 million businesses in the United States. Most of them have one to five employees. It wouldn't be at all surprising if 10 million of them are bust by mid-year. And wow. that's a lot of millions of jobs that aren't coming back. 
Now, a healthy entrepreneurial system is going to replace those businesses if they're still useful in a post-COVID world uh, and will create new jobs. So in the long run, it's okay. We'll get through this. But in the interim, which is likely to be longer than people would like to contemplate, uh, the disruption is going to be very serious. Um, So let me stop you there because you've already raised several issues that I'd like to ask you about. Uh, The massive unprecedented stimulus that we've seen, in fact, to help those businesses survive so that the workers are just furloughed and not permanently laid off. What's your assessment? Well, that works if, um, if the jobs are still there, if the company's still there. But um, basically companies that are publicly traded, that are employers of large numbers of people, that are um, well politically connected, are the ones that are most likely to get the support needed to weather the storm. Small businesses, despite the fact that uh, uh, the payroll protection program is supposed to be targeting small businesses, many of them are going to be left in the lurch. Um, I was talking uh, a day or two ago with a friend of mine who is a restaurateur. He owns about 15 restaurants. He said um, he's not going to reopen any of them. He said... uh, uh, He's in his late 50s. He said, I'm retiring with much less than I ever thought I'd retire with. Um, And I'm just not going to reopen because it's going to be too many years before people come to restaurants in large enough numbers for it to be um, a profitable business. Well, wow, that's daunting. We have um, we've had 34 million people. uh, newly signing up for unemployment checks in just seven weeks. Um, the latest payroll report shows 20 million jobless and unemployment just under 15%. But the Bureau of Labor Statistics is estimating that the 14.7% unemployment is itself nearly 5% underestimated. So that'll show up next month, along with additional job losses. So it's entirely likely that next month will be just above 20% in acknowledged unemployment. Highest it ever was, uh, the highest it ever got was uh, 24.8% at the depths of the Great Depression in the summer of uh, 1933. So this is really quite a remarkable situation. So the differences that have been pointed out to me by economists, for instance, is that the difference here is that there's an end in sight. And that end in sight is, number one, that uh, we're seeing reopenings happening across the globe. It's happening state by state. And also, uh, you know, the the fact that uh, a vaccine, they're, you know, accelerating the search for a vaccine. And when we, if and when we get an effective vaccine, which they're quite hopeful that we will, then this will end. And then if we can just get to there with government stimulus, with government help, uh, that we should be okay. You don't buy that argument? No, no. Epidemiologists opining on the economy 
uh, aren't very useful observers and uh, any more than investment managers opining on epidemiology. Uh, so shutting down the economy is new and different. Um, we've had uh, 2018 flu, 80,000 died. COVID's more dangerous. It's more deadly. No question about it. But um, we have 500,000 a year who die of cancer and 40,000 a year who die of uh, car crashes. Do we ban cars? Um, right. So the, the decision to shutter the economy was a political choice, which I think will be studied for generations as an example of what not to do. But um, here we're delving into an arena where there are strongly held views and I'm sure many of your viewers uh, feel very strongly that I'm mistaken. Well, but the important thing is th that's our reality. It is our and reality. It's happened. And it so now what do we do from an investment point of view? And, uh, you know, as I uh, mentioned in my introduction to you, the fact is that the, the dominance of the fangs, the extended fangs, including Microsoft, for instance, um, has been pronounced and kind of overwhelming. And the pandemic hasn't changed that. If anything, it's accentuated that because they happen to be digital yeah. entities. And so, you know, to tell me about, you know, that the dominance of the fangs and the U.S. as well, um, if, how that is going to change, do you think, or what your view of it is? Well, firstly, we've definitely had a flight to safety. Um, uh, first quarter was a take no prisoners market crash. Anything with a whiff of risk fell roughly in proportion to its perceived risk. Um, the sole notable exception was long treasuries, which soared, of course, because mm -hmm. interest rates tumbled. And in the aftermath of a take no prisoners market crash, the market starts a period of sorting things out trying to assess what's been hit harder than it deserves, hard down to pricing levels that are just implausibly cheap, and what still isn't cheap even after the market has crashed. Um, Self-evident example of the latter is U.S. stocks, which were trading at a Schiller P.E. ratio, price relative to 10-year smoothed earnings, of about 32 in mid-February, cratered to the 23 range. And so it was still high even when it cratered? After the crash, it was still expensive, and now it's back up right. to the high 20s. So that's really interesting to see that. Now, um, the other thing that's noteworthy is that uh, growth stocks, uh, notably the FANGs, are beneficiaries of covid um, yes. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Amazon. I, I, I love the company. I don't love the stock. A great company isn't necessarily a great stock, and a great, great uh, stock isn't necessarily a good company. So uh, Amazon sales boomed. So did their costs. So their profits did not. But that can change. We've, they've got uh, millions more people hooked on buying stuff on Amazon is because of COVID. Uh, Netflix has millions more subscribers. So of course, technology has been a beneficiary, but at what price? Amazon released their earnings at the end of April, 
and uh, at, at the end of that day, they were trading at 111 times the trailing 12-month earnings. Right. The average value stock in uh, Russell 1000 value at the end of the crash was priced in uh, low double digits, 11 or 12 times the trailing 10-year earnings. Uh, that's cheap. So when we look at the spread between growth and value, I get it. The COVID situation means that there's going to be a lot of bankruptcies. The bankruptcies are mostly going to be on the value side. The value side has slower growth rates and skinnier profit margins. Skinny profit margins mean less room to weather this kind of storm. Uh, but if you look at the price to book value for um, professors Fama and French created growth and value indexes where they took the 30% that was cheapest on price to book value, that's value, the 30% most richly priced, that's growth, and you track the performance of those portfolios relative to one another. And the Fama French value portfolio is at one-tenth the price to book value of the growth portfolio, one-tenth. Is that unprecedented? Has it ever been that wide? At the, mm. at the peak of the tech bubble, the spread was nine to one, and that set the stage for value to beat growth by uh, between 15 and 20 percentage points per annum over the next seven years, for seven years. So do I expect us to recover with value beating growth by 7% a year over the next seven years? No, that was a, a remarkable rebound. But um, you would literally have to have half of all the value companies go bust in order for the current spread to actually be fair. The narrative right now is um, flight to safety. The U.S. is the place to go. It's the safe haven. Uh, growth stocks are going to weather this storm. Value stocks, a lot of them won't. And as with most narratives, uh, there's truth in the narrative, which is why it's so persuasive. It also is very useful to look past where we are now and to ask the question, where are we likely to be in five or 10 years? And patiently average your way into um, a, um, an investment stance that reflects that. Because you don't know patiently. how- Yes. <laughs> and so uh, I, would, uh, I use the market crash to average into larger positions in markets that I think are cheap and fade markets that I think are still expensive. Um, U.S. stocks, I think, are still expensive. And so U.S. stocks are uh, an area that I would not want to average in. Emerging market stocks, especially emerging markets, deep value stocks are cheap, but they could get cheaper first. So you average in gradually and by averaging in gradually, you increase the likelihood that you'll have your maximum exposure when the market turns. And that's the beauty of um, uh, taking your time and being patient. Rob, let me ask you about kind of patiently uh, getting invested in the markets that look undervalued. That uh, A portfolio that you've run for a long time is the uh, PIMCO All Asset Fund. Yes. And I know that you've been um, underweight developed markets for, for several years and overweight emerging markets, some inflation protected securities as well, which has hindered your performance. Correct. Um, in recent years. 
So, you know, you're telling us to be gradual, <laughs> but it sounds like you pretty much, um, you know, were much more bold in your approach in the all asset fund. Is that the case? Um, I'm not allowed to talk about individual funds, um, but right, I can sorry. talk. But in general, what you've done I, professionally. Yeah, I can talk about been... strategy and a, about how we approach that kind of issue. And basically, our, our approach to investing is to patiently average in and average out, to look for diversification. Most investors anchor heavily on domestic mainstream stocks and bonds. And there's a much broader opportunity set out there. The other element that I think is interesting is that most investors with a focus on mainstream domestic US stocks and bonds um, basically are betting that inflation won't come back. What do I mean by that? Renewed inflation, inflation shocks are um, very bad for bonds and not helpful for mainstream stocks, especially when they're mm -hmm. fully priced. And so the likelihood is that if there's renewed inflation, then uh, you're likely to be offsides by having a mainstream domestic balanced portfolio. There are so many asset classes that are much more attractively priced. Now they haven't done well, but that doesn't mean that they're uh, expensive and it doesn't mean that they're um, inappropriately positioned for the years ahead. In fact, I would think the 2020s will turn out to be a brilliant decade for diversifying asset classes outside of mainstream stocks and bonds for emerging markets, stocks, maybe bonds, if there isn't, if inflation doesn't ripple across those economies too. And what about small company stocks? Small companies, large cap. small company stocks got hit hard. They were down 30% in the first quarter against 19% for large cap. So they're, they're more interesting than they were. You have the denominator problem. What do I mean by that? Um, price to earnings ratios can be very indicative of a bargain unless those earnings are headed to zero. Right, and the earnings are the denominator, right? Right. And so when I said this time is different, what I meant was we will see more bankruptcies than we've seen since the Great Depression. This will be, this is, we're in a depression, we're not in a recession. We're in a depression. And the only question is, what shape will the um, recovery look like? If you take 30 million US businesses and you take 10 million of, out behind the barn and shoot them, and then say, okay, now you can reopen, you have a problem. I, I think it's gonna be three to four years before we're back to the per capita GDP levels that we had just a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And um, that's wow, disturbing. That's, that's disturbing. Yes. But, but then you look at where are you likely to have the greatest damage from a shutdown? in economies that are heavily dependent on supply chains that where businesses can't restart fairly quickly and easily or in economies that are just used to horrible things happening on a regular basis, emerging markets. They're used to this stuff. So my, my right. best guess- Crisis after crisis. Yeah, uh -huh. my best guess is emerging markets are 
much more likely to see a V recovery than we are. What should individual investors been doing do? I would recommend that investors look to non-U.S. markets, which are distinctly cheaper. Uh, what's called EFA, uh, the international developed markets that span uh, Europe and East Asia. Um, those markets are priced at a uh, Schiller PE, price relative to 10-year smooth earnings, of about 14 times. Emerging markets are less than 11. On the value side, emerging markets fundamental index is less than seven times those long-term smooth earnings. Um, this is not the time to go risk off. The time to go risk off was three months ago. Mm-hmm. This is the time to think about how to average in. But this is not a buy the dips market. This is average in slowly, patiently, because I think there's a, a high odds that will test those lows. I think there's decent odds, 30 or 40% chance that we'll make new lows. So as people focus on gosh, the story for growth stocks might not be quite as rosy as we thought, or gosh, a lot of value stocks are actually going to survive, and the ones that survive have less competition, more pricing power, and maybe more profitable in 2022 than they were in 2019. That's kind of cool, and we can get it at eight times earnings. Let's buy it. So I think there's a turning point, I think right now we're at one of those peak fear environments for value relative to growth. Are you doing anything different or what are you doing in your portfolio as a result of the pandemic? You know, I'm, I'm a big believer in diversification. Um, I am, as of late March, less diversified than I've ever been in my career. I have over half of my liquid net worth in uh, deep value uh, emerging market stocks. People have described me as a perma bear. I'm not a bear when stocks are cheap. And right. do I think um, all of these deep value emerging market stocks will survive? No, but the ones that do are going to have a clear runway with less competition and better profit potential than they had before. Final question, Rob, that we ask everyone on WealthTrack is if there's one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio that we should all own some of, what would that be? I would say a fundamental index mutual fund or ETF in emerging markets. If you don't have that in your portfolio, you should. Why a fundamental versus a, a cap, a traditional capitalization weighted index now? Why do you think that has an advantage now? Cap weighting will weight stocks in direct proportion to price. So if Amazon is at 10 times the PE ratio of value stocks, it's going to get 10 times as much weight in the portfolio as a similar sized value stock. So fundamental index simply weights companies according to how big they are. It has a rebalancing alpha. If a stock soars and its fundamentals don't, it says, thanks for the gains. Let me reweight it down. If it tumbles more than its fundamentals did, fundamental index will say, okay, I get it. The company's troubled, but it's in the price. 
so it's not going to hurt me going forward necessarily. Let me take advantage of the low price and top it up. So you get this rebalancing alpha where you're contra trading against the market's most extravagant bets. All right. Rob Arnott, always a pleasure to talk to you and your thoughtful insights uh, give us a lot of food for thought always. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very, very much. It's always a pleasure. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is make sure you are truly diversified. How do you do that? The late great financial historian Peter Bernstein, author of Against the Gods, The Remarkable Story of Risk, told us many years ago on Wealth Track that you are not truly diversified until you own something that makes you uncomfortable. That usually means unpopular, underperforming, and cheap. In today's markets, uncomfortable covers a wide range of assets. Investors have been shunning value stocks, emerging market securities, and most inflation hedges. Gold is a recent exception. Take a hard look at your portfolio and see what uncomfortable assets are missing and consider adding some so you are truly diversified. Next week, Wall Street's number one economist, Ed Hyman, on the economy's damaging second wave. In this week's extra feature on our website, Arnott shares the permanent changes he is making in his life as a result of COVID-19. Please continue to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you for spending time with us on this Memorial Day weekend. We are so grateful to the men and women who have sacrificed their lives so we can live in freedom and peace. Make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and a productive one.